Chapter Thirteen of the Silent Barrier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Silent Barrier by Louis Tracy. Chapter Thirteen: The Compact. Now, what have you to say? We are safe from meddlers here. Bower spoke curtly. Stampa and he were halfway across the narrow strip of undulating meadowland which shut off the hotel from the village. They had followed the footpath, a busy thoroughfare bombarded with golf balls on fine mornings, but likely to be unfrequented till the snow melted. Receiving no answer, Bower glanced sharply at his companion. But the old guide might be unaware of his presence. So steadily did he trudge onward with downcast, introspective eyes. Resolved to make an end of a silence that was irksome, Bower halted. Then, for the first time, Stampa opened his lips. Not here, he said. Why not? We are alone. You must come with me, Herr Baron. That is not my title. It used to be. It will serve as well as any other. I refuse to stir a yard farther. Then, said Stampa, I will kill you where you stand. Neither in voice nor feature did he exhibit any emotion. He merely put forward an all-sufficing reason and left it at that. Bower was no coward, though the curiously repressed manner of the threat sent a wave of blood from his face to his heart. He strode suddenly nearer ready and eager to grapple with his adversary before a weapon could be drawn he peered into the peasant's carolined face so that is your plan is it he said thickly you would entice me to some lonely place where you can shoot or stab me at your own good pleasure fool i can overpower you instantly and have you sent to a jail or a lunatic asylum for the rest of your life i carry no knife nor can i use a pistol herr baron was the unruffled answer i do not need them my hands are enough you are a man a big strong man with all a man's worst passions have you never felt that you could tear your enemy with your nails choke him till the bones of his neck crackled and his tongue lolled out like a panting dog's that is how i too may feel if you deny my request and i will kill you marcus bauer as sure as god is in heaven i will kill you fear now lent its blind fury to the instinct of self-preservation bauer leaped at stampa determined to master him at the first onslaught but he was heavy and slow inert after long years of physical indolence the older man awkward only because of his crippled leg swung himself clear of bower's grip and sprang out of reach if there be any who look tis you who risk imprisonment he said calmly with a touch of humour that assuredly he did not intend bower knew then how greatly he had erred it was a mistake ever to have agreed to meet stampa alone a much greater one not to have waited to be attacked as stampa said truly if any one in the village had seen his mad action, there would be testimony that he was the aggressor. 
He frowned at Stampa in a bull-like rage, glowering at him in a frenzy of impotence. This dour old man opposed a grim barrier to his hopes. It was intolerable that he, Mark Bower, the millionaire, a man who held within his grasp all that the material world has to give, should be standing here at the mercy of a Swiss peasant. Throughout the dreary vigil of the night he had pondered this thing, and could find no loophole of escape. The record of that accursed summer sixteen years ago was long since obliterated in the history of Marcus Bauer, the emotional youth who made love to a village belle in Zermatt, and posed as an Austrian baron among the English and Italians who at that time formed the select band of climbers in the valet. But the short-lived romance was dead and buried, and its memory brought the taste of Dead Sea ashes to his mouth. Marcus Bower had become a naturalized Englishman. The mock barony was replaced by a wealth that might buy real titles. But the crime still lived, and woe to Mark Bower the financial magnet if it was brought home to him. He had not risen above his fellows without making enemies. He well knew the weakness and the strength of the British social system, with its strange complacency, its allowances, its hysterical prudery its queer amalgam of puritanism and light-hearted forbearance. He might gamble with loaded dice in the city, and people would applaud him as cleverer and shrewder than his opponents. His name might be coupled with that of a pretty actress, and people would only smile knowingly. But let a hint of his betrayal of Etta Stampa and its attendant circumstances reach the ears of those who hated him, and he would sink forthwith into the slough of rich parvenus who eke out their lives in vain efforts to enter the closely guarded circle from which he had been expelled. If that was the only danger, he might meet and vanquish it. The unscrupulous use of money, backed up by the law of libel, can do a great deal to still the public conscience. There was another, more subtle and heart-searching. He was genuinely in love with Helen Winton. He had reached an age when position and power were more gratifying than mere gilded bohemianism. He could enter Parliament either by way of Palace Yard or through the portals of the Upper House. He owned estates in Scotland and the home counties, and his Park Lane mansion figured already in the address books of half the peerage. It pleased him to think that in placing a charming and gracious woman like Helen at the head of his household, she would look to him as the lodestar of her existence, and not tolerate him with the well-bred hauteur of one of the many aristocratic young women who were ready enough to marry him, but who, in their heart of hearts, despised him. He had deliberately avoided that sort of matrimonial blunder. It promised more than it fulfilled. He refused to wed a woman who deemed her social rank dearly bartered for his money. Yet, before ever the question arose, he knew quite well that this girl whom he had chosen, the poorly paid secretary of some harmless enthusiast, the strangely selected correspondent of an insignificant journal, would spurn him with scorn if she heard the story Stampa might tell of his lost daughter. That was the wildest absurdity in the mad jumble of events that brought him here face to face with a broken and frayed old man, one whom he had never seen before the previous day. It was of a piece with this fantasy 
that he should be standing ankle-deep in snow under the brilliant sun of August, and in risk, if not in fear of his life, within two hundred yards of a crowded hotel and a placid Swiss village. His usually well-ordered brain rebelled against these manifest incongruities. His passion subsided almost as quickly as it had arisen. He moistened his cold lips with his tongue, and the action seemed to restore his power of speech. "'I suppose you have some motive in bringing me here. What is it?' he said. "'You must come to the cemetery. It is not far.' This unlooked-for reply struck a new note. It had such a bizarre effect that Bower actually laughed. "'Then you really are mad!' he guffawed harshly. "'No, not at all. "'I was on the verge of madness the other day, "'but I was pulled back in time, thanks to the Madonna, "'else I might never have met you. "'Do you expect me to walk quietly to the burial ground "'in order that I might be slaughtered conveniently?' "'I am not going to kill you, Marcus Bauer,' said Stampa. "'I trust the good God will enable me to keep my hands off you.' He will punish you in his own good time. You are safe from me. A moment ago you spoke differently. Ah, that was because you refused to come with me. Assuredly I shall bring either you or your lying tongue to Etta's grave this morning. But you will come now. You are afraid, Herr Baron. I see it in your eyes and you value that well-fed body of yours too highly not to do as I demand. Believe me, within the next few minutes you shall either kneel by my little girl's grave, or tumble into your own. I am not afraid, Stampa. I warn you again that I am more than a match for you. Yet I would willingly make any reparation within my power for the wrong I have done you. Yes, yes. That is all I ask, reparation such as it is. Not to me, to Etta. Come, then. I have no weapon, I repeat. You trust to your size and strength. So, by your own showing, you are safe. But you must come. A gleam of confidence crept into Bower's eyes. Was it not wise to humor this old madman? Perhaps by displaying a remorse that was not all acting, he might arrange a truce, secure a breathing space. He would be free to deal with Millicent Jacques. He might so contrive matters that Helen should be far removed from Stampa's dangerous presence before the threatened disclosures were made. Yes, a wary prudence in speech and action might accomplish much. Surely he dared match his brain against a peasant's. Very well he said. I shall accompany you. But remember, at the least sign of violence, I shall not only defend myself, but drag you off to the communal guardhouse. Without any answer, Stampa resumed his steady plodding through the snow. Bower followed, somewhat in the rear. He glanced sharply back toward the hotel. So far as he could judge, no one had witnessed that frantic spring at his tormentor. At that hour nearly every resident would be on the sunlit veranda. He wondered whether or not Helen and Millicent had met again. He wished now that he had interviewed Millicent last night. Her problem was simple enough. 
a mere question of terms. Spite had carried her boldly through the scene in the foyer, but she was far too sensible a young woman to persist in a hopeless quarrel. It was one of the fatalities that dogged his footsteps ever since he came to Maloya that the only person watching him at the moment should happen to be Millicent herself. Her room was situated at the back of the hotel, and she had fallen asleep after many hours of restless thought. When the clang of a bell woke her with a start, she found that the morning was far advanced. She dressed hurriedly, rather in a panic lest her quarry might have evaded her by an early flight. The fine panorama of the Italian Alps naturally attracted her eyes. She was staring at it idly when she saw Bauer and Stampa crossing the open space in front of her bedroom window. Stampa, of course, was unknown to her. In some undefinable way his presence chimed with her fear that Bauer would leave Maloya forthwith. Did he intend to post through the Vale of Bregalia to Chiavena? Then, indeed, she might be called on to overcome unforeseen difficulties. She appreciated his character to the point of believing that Helen was his dupe. She regretted now that she was so foolish as to attack her one-time friend openly. Far better have asked Helen to visit her privately, and endeavor to find out exactly how the land lay before she encountered Bower. At any rate, she ought to learn without delay whether or not he was hiring post-horses in the village. If so, he was unwilling to meet her, and the battle royal must take place in London. A maid entered with coffee and rolls. "'Who is that man with the English monsieur?' inquired Millicent, pointing to the two. The servant was a Samaritz girl, and a glance sufficed. "'That? He is Christian Stampa, madam.' He used to drive one of Juice's carriages, but he had a misfortune. He nearly killed a lady whom he was bringing to the hotel, and was dismissed in consequence. Now he is guide to an American gentleman. My God, but they are droll, the Americans. The maid laughed and created a clatter with basin and hot water can. Millicent, forcing herself to eat quickly, continued to gaze after the pair. The description of Stampa's employer interested her. His drollery evidently consisted in hiring a cripple as guide. "'Is the American monsieur named Charles K. Spencer?' she said, speaking very clearly. "'I do not know, madam. But Marie, who is on the second, can tell me. Shall I ask?' "'Do, please.' Leontine bustled out. Just then Millicent was amazed by Bower's extraordinary leap at Stampa, and the guide's agile avoidance of his would-be assailant. The men faced each other as though a fight was imminent. But the upshot was that they walked on together quietly. Be sure that two keen blue eyes watched their every motion thenceforth, never leaving them till they entered the village street and disappeared behind a large chalet. And what did it all mean? Mark Bower scuffling with a villager. Millicent's smooth forehead wrinkled in earnest thought. How queer it would be if Bower was trying to force Spencer's guide into the commission of a crime. He would stop at nothing. He believed he could bend all men, and all women too, to his will. Was he angered by unexpected resistance? 
she hoped the maid would hurry with her news though she meant to go at once to the village it would be a point gained if she was certain of stampa's identity she was already veiled and beferred when leontine returned yes marie had given her full information madame had heard perhaps how herr bauer and the pretty english mademoiselle were in danger of being snowed up in the forno hut yesterday while stampa had gone with his voyageur monsieur spencer to their rescue and the young lady was the one whom stampa had endangered during his career as a cab-driver again it was droll millicent agreed for the second time she resolved to postpone her journey to st moritz bower was surprised when stampa led him into the main road having never seen any sign of a cemetery at maloja he guessed vaguely that it must be situated close to the church therein in a sense he was right it will be remembered how helen's solitary ramble on the morning after her arrival in maloja brought her to the secluded graveyard she first visited the little swiss tabernacle which had attracted her curiosity and thence took the priest's path to the last resting-place of his flock but stampa had a purpose in following a circuitous route he turned sharply round the base of a huge pile of logs stacked there in readiness for the fires of a long winter look he said throwing open the half-door of a cattle-shed behind the timber they found her here on the second of august a sunday morning just before the people went to early mass by her side was a bottle labelled poison she bought it in zermatt on the sixth of july so you see my little girl had been thinking a whole month of killing herself poor child what a month they tell me herr baron you left zermatt on the sixth of july bower's face had grown cold and gray while the old man was speaking he began to understand stampa would spare him none of the horror of the tragedy from which he fled like a lost soul when the news of it reached the hotel well he would not draw back now if stampa and he were destined to have a settlement why defer it this was his day of reckoning of atonement he hoped and he would not shirk the ordeal though his flesh quivered and his humbled pride lashed him like a whip the squalid stable was peculiarly offensive owing to the gale the cattle that ought to be pasturing in the high alp were crowded there in reeking filth yesterday not long before this hour he was humming verses of cow songs to helen and beguiling the way to the forno with a recital of the customs and idols of the hills what a spiteful thing was fate why had this doting peasant risen from the dead to drag him through the mire of a past transgression if stampa betrayed anger if his eyes and voice showed the scorn and hatred of a man justly incensed because of his daughter's untimely death the situation would be more tolerable but his words were mild biting only by reason of their simple pathos he spoke in a detached manner he might be relating the unhappy story of some village maid of whom he had no personal knowledge this complete self-effacement grated on bower's nerves it almost spurred him again to ungovernable rage but he realized the paramount need of self-control he clenched his teeth in the effort to bear his punishment without protest 
and Stampa seemed to have the gift of divination. He read Bower's heart. By some means he became aware that the unsavory shed was loathsome to the fine gentleman standing beside him. Etta was always so neat in her dress that it must have been a dreadful thing to see her laid there, he went on. She fell just inside the door. Before she drank the poison, she must have looked once at the top of old Corvatsch. She thought of me, I am sure, for she had my letter in her pocket telling her that I was at Pontresina with my voyageurs. And she would think of you too, her lover, her promised husband. Bower cleared his throat. He tried to frame a denial, but Stampa waved the unspoken thoughts aside. "'Surely you told her you would marry her, Herr Baron,' he said gently. "'Was it not to implore you to keep your vow that she journeyed all the way from Zermatt to Maloya?' "'She was but a child, an innocent and frightened child, and you should not have been so brutal when she came to you in the hotel.' "'Ah, well, it is all ended and done with now.' It is said the Madonna gives her most powerful aid to young girls who seek from her son the mercy they were denied on earth. And my Etta has been dead sixteen long years, long enough for her sin to be cleansed by the fire of purgatory. Perhaps today, when justice is done to her at last, she may be admitted to paradise. Who can tell? I would ask the priest but he would bid me not question the ways of providence. At last Bower found his voice. Etta is at peace, he muttered. We have suffered for our folly, both of us. I... I could not marry her. It was impossible. Stampa did look at him then, such a look as the old Roman may have cast on the man who caused him to slay his beloved daughter. Yet when he spoke... His words were measured, almost reverent. Not impossible, Marcus Bauer. Nothing is impossible to God. And he ordained that you should marry my Etta. I tell you, began Bauer huskily, but the other silenced him with a gesture. They took her to the inn. They are kind people who live there. And someone telegraphed to me. The news went to Zermatt and back to Pontresina. I was high up in the Bernina with my party. But a friend found me, and I ran like a madman over ice and rock in the foolish belief that if only I held my little girl in my arms, I should kiss her back to life again. I took the line of a bird. If I had crossed the Moretto, I should not be lame today. But I took Corvatsch in my path, and I fell. And when I saw Etta's grave, the grass was growing on it. Come. The turf is sixteen years old now. Breaking off thus abruptly, he swung away into the open pasture. Bower, heavy with wrath and care, strode close behind. He strove to keep his brain intent on the one issue, to placate this sorrowing old man, to persuade him that silence was best. Soon they reached a path that curved upward among stunted trees. It ended at an iron gate in the center of a low wall. Bower shuddered. This, then, was the cemetery. He had never noticed it. 
though in former years he could have drawn a map of the Maloya from memory, so familiar was he with every twist and turn of mountain, valley, and lake. The sun was hot on that small, pine-sheltered hillock. The snow was beginning to melt. It clogged their feet, and left green patches where their footprints would have been clearly marked an hour earlier. And they were not the only visitors that day. There were signs of one who had climbed the hill since the snow ceased falling. Inside the wall the white covering lay deep. Bower's prominent eyes, searching everywhere with furtive horror, saw that a little space had been cleared in one corner. The piled-up snow was strewed with broken weeds and tufts of long grass. It bore an uncanny resemblance to the edges of a grave. He paused, irresolute, unnerved, yet desperately determined to fall in with Stampa's strange mood. "'There is nothing to fear,' said the old man gently. "'They brought her here. You are not afraid. You, who clasped her to your breast, and swore you loved her?' Bower's face, deathly pale before, flamed into sudden life. The strain was unbearable. He could feel his own heart beating violently. "'What do you want me to do?' he almost shouted. "'She is dead. My repentance is of no avail. Why are you torturing me in this manner?' "'Softly, son-in-law, softly. You are disturbed, or you would see the hand of providence in our meeting. What could be better arranged?' You have returned after all these years. It is not too late. Today you shall marry Etta. Bower's neck was purple above the line of his white collar. The veins stood out on his temples. He looked like one in the throes of apoplexy. For heaven's sake, what do you mean? he panted. I mean just what I say. This is your wedding day. Your bride lies there waiting. Never did woman wait for her man so still and patient. Come away, Stampa. This thing must be dealt with reasonably. Come away. Let us find some less mournful place, and I shall tell you. Nay, even yet you do not understand. Well, then, Marcus Bauer, hear me while you may. I swear you shall marry my girl if I have to recite the wedding prayers over your dead body. I have petitioned the Madonna to spare me from becoming a murderer, and I give you this last chance of saving your dirty life. Kneel there by the side of the grave, and attend to the words that I shall read to you, or you must surely die. You came to Zermatt and chose my Etta. Very well. If it be God's will that she should be the wife of a scoundrel like you, it is not for me to resist. Marry her you shall, here and now. I will bind you to her henceforth and for all eternity, and the time will come when her intercession may drag you back from the hell your cruel deed deserves. With a mighty effort Bower regained the self-conceit that Stampa's words, no less than the depressing environment, had shocked out of him. The grotesque nature of the proposal was a tonic in itself. If I had expected any such folly on your part, I should not have come here with you, he said, speaking with something of his habitual dignity. Your suggestion is monstrous. 
How can I marry a dead woman? Stampa's expression changed instantly. Its meek sorrow yielded to a ferocity that was appalling. Already bent, he crouched like a wild beast, gathering itself for an attack. Do you refuse? he asked in a low note of intense passion. Yes, curse you, and mutter your prayers in your own behalf. You need them more than I. Bower planted himself firmly right in the gateway. He clenched his fists and savagely resolved to batter this lunatic's face into a pulp. He had a notion that Stampa would rush straight at him and give him an opportunity to strike from the shoulder hard and true. He was bitterly undeceived. The man who was nearly twenty years his senior jumped from the top of a low monument onto the flat coping stones of the wall. From that greater height he leaped down on Bower, who struck out wildly, but without a tithe of the force needed to stop the impact of a heavily built adversary. He had to change feet, too, and he was borne to the earth by that catamount spring before he could avoid it. For a few seconds the two writhed in the snow in deadly embrace. Then Stampa remained uppermost. He had pinned Bower to the ground face downward. Kneeling on his shoulders, with the left hand gripping his neck and the right clutching his hair and scalp, he pulled back the wretched man's head till it was a miracle that the spinal column was not broken. "'Now,' he growled, "'are you content?' There was no reply. It was a physical impossibility that Bower should speak. Even in his tempest of rage, Stampa realized this, and loosened his grip sufficiently to give his opponent a moment of precious breath. "'Answer,' he muttered again. "'Promise you will obey, you brute, or I crack your neck.' Bower gurgled something that sounded like an appeal for mercy. Stampa rose at once, but took the precaution to close the gate, since they had rolled into the cemetery during their short fight. "'Supper, Lote!' he cried. "'You are not the first who deemed me helpless because of my crooked leg. You might have run from me, Marcus Bower. You could never fight me. Were I at death's door, I would still have strength left to throttle you if once my fingers closed round your throat. Bower raised himself on hands and knees. He cut an abject figure. But he was beyond all thought of appearances. For one dread moment his life had trembled in the balance. That glimpse of death and of the gloomy path beyond was affrighting. He would do anything now to gain time. Wealth, fame, love itself, what were they, each and all, when viewed from the threshold of that barrier that admits a man once and forever? In deep laboring gasps his breath came back. The blood coursed freely again in his veins. He lived. Ah, that was everything. He still lived. He scrambled to his feet, bareheaded, yellow-skinned, dazed and trembling, his eyes dwelt on Stampa with a new timidity. He found difficulty in straightening his limbs. He was quite insensible of his ridiculous aspect. His clothing, even his hair, was matted with soft snow. In a curiously servile way, he stooped to pick up his cap. 
Stampa lurched toward the tiny patch of grass from which he had cleared the snow soon after daybreak. "'Kneel here at her feet,' he said. Bower approached with a slow, dragging movement. Without a word of protest, he sank to his knees. The snow in his hair began to melt. He passed his hands over his face as though shutting out some horrific vision. Stampa produced from his pocket a frayed and tattered prayer book, an Italian edition of the Parwasien Roman. He opened it at a marked page and began to read the marriage ritual. Though the words were Latin, and he was no better educated than any other peasant in the district, he pronounced the sonorous phrases with extraordinary accuracy. Of course, he was an Italian, and Latin was not such an incomprehensible tongue to him as it would prove to a German or Englishman of his class. Moreover, the liturgy of the Church of Rome is familiar to its people, no matter what their race. Bauer, stupefied and benumbed, though the sun was shining brilliantly, and a constant dripping from the pine branches gave proof of a rapid thaw, listened like one in a trance. He understood scattered sentences, brokenly, yet with sufficient comprehension. Confiteor Deo Omnipotenti, mumbled Stampa, and the bridegroom in this strange rite knew that he was making the profession of a faith he did not share. His mind cleared by degrees. He was still under the spell of bodily fear, but his brain triumphed over physical stress, and bade him disregard these worn-out shibboleths. Nevertheless, the words had a tremendous significance. Pater noster quies in quellus, sanctifi setur nomen tum. Dimite nobis debita nostra, sicute nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. It was quite easy to follow their general drift. Any one who had ever recited the Lord's Prayer in any language would realize that he was asking the deity to forgive him his trespasses as he forgave those who trespassed against him and there came to the kneeling man a thrilling consciousness that Stampa was appealing for him in the name of the dead girl, the once blushing and timid maid whose bones were crumbling into dust beneath that coverlet of earth and herbage. There could be no doubting the grim earnestness of the reader. It mattered not a jot to Stampa that he was usurping the functions of the church in an outlandish travesty of her ritual. He was sustained by a fixed belief that the daughter so heartlessly reft from him was present in spirit. Nay, more, that she was profoundly grateful for this belated sanctifying of an unhallowed love. Bower's feelings or convictions were not of the slightest consequence. He owed it to Etta to make reparation, and the duty must be fulfilled to the utmost letter. Strong man as he was, Bower nearly fainted. He scarce had the faculty of speech when Stampa bade him make the necessary responses in Italian. But he obeyed. All the time the devilish conviction grew that if he persisted in this flummery, he might emerge scathless from a ghastly ordeal. The punishment of publicity was the one thing he dreaded, and that might be avoided for Etta's sake. So he obeyed with cunning pretense of grief, trying to veil the malevolence in his heart. At last, when the solemn Per omnia secula 
seculorum, and a peaceful amen, announced the close of this amazing marriage service, Stampa looked fixedly at his supposed son-in-law. "'Now, Marcus Bauer,' he said, "'I have done with you. See to it that you do not again break your plighted vows to my daughter. She is your wife. You are her husband. Not even death can divide you. Go.' His strong, splendidly molded face, massive and dignified, cast in lines that would have appealed to a sculptor who wished to limb the features of a patriarch of old, wore an aspect of settled calm. He was at peace with all the world. He had forgiven his enemy. Bower rose again stiffly. He would have spoken, but Stampa now fell on his knees and began to pray silently so the millionaire, humbled again and terror-stricken by the sinister significance of those concluded words, yet not daring to question them, crept out of the place of the dead. As he staggered down the hillside, he looked back once. He had eyes only for the little iron gate, but Stampa came not. Then he essayed to brush some of the clinging snow off his clothes. He shook himself like a dog after a plunge into water. In the distance he saw the hotel, with its promise of luxury and forgetfulness, and he cursed Stampa with a bitter fury of emphasis, trying vainly to persuade himself that he had been the victim of a maniac's delusion. End of chapter 13